We're currently in a study through this epistle of Paul to the Colossians. And, and so today we're going to look at this great passage in verses 15 through 18, where, um, where Paul just shows ultimately really, uh, the preeminence of Christ. And, you know, as I think about the text and as I think about the world that we live in, um, you know, you want to, at t- especially at times like this, you know, you want to see God, how would you speak, um, into the current cultural moment through the passage that we are looking at today. And I think that in a, in a very special and powerful way, uh, the Lord will speak into the current moment through this text because this text just reminds us that, that at the end of the day, when everything is said and done, that Jesus is preeminent. That, that Jesus is the answer, that he is the solution. And whether human beings ever figure that out or not, thank God it's not left up to us to figure it out. You know, God one day will make that crystal clear when he sends the Lord back. But, but in the meantime, as we think of living in a, uh, a disoriented and a confused society, we can have, first of all, peace ourselves, knowing that Christ is preeminent, knowing that he's uh, sovereign, that he's in control. And that is the message that we have to uh, communicate with the people um, around us in the world. That, you know, there, there is an answer to our problems, to our social problems, to the, the racial uh, issues, to uh, the unrest of whatever sort it might be. And so as we look at uh, these verses today, that's my prayer, that God will take this great passage that is really just a, a detailed description of who Jesus is, and he will uh, so magnify the Lord in our hearts to where we can uh, walk away today with peace and with confidence that God is at work. So. We're going to focus in on verses 15 through 18, but, but first of all, let me just you know, set the stage with some of the background here. So as was the case in most New Testament period churches, there were regular attempts by the enemy through false teachers to bring in ideas that would be destructive to believers. This is, this is common. Uh, we, we see in all of the New Testament letters, especially Paul's letters, uh, there's there's encouragement, there's instruction, there's correction, um, but there's also warning about these various false teachings that were always looking to make their way, way into the church. So sometimes the apostles would confront these heresies head on, and at other times they would indirectly address them by simply magnifying the truth over the error. And and here in Colossians, Paul does both. In chapter two, he is going to come with a frontal assault on the false teachers and their teaching. And we'll see that when we get into the second chapter where he really uh, drills down and, and kind of, you know, confronts them more personally. But here in chapter one, 
he's going to use the other approach by taking Christ who the false teachers were degrading and showing that he is supreme over all. Now, the particular form of philosophy that the Colossians were being influenced by taught that Jesus was a spirit being who emanated from God, but was just one of many emanations and not himself God. So that, that's the background for what Paul's going to do right here. So that was the teaching. Oh yeah, Jesus came from God, but he was just one of many emanations. You see, this philosophy, which would develop fully later into Gnosticism, uh, rejected the idea that, that man could ever really personally know God or, or personally connect with God because the reasoning was uh, God is spirit, which is pure, and people are material beings, and material is by its very nature impure. And so there's, there's no way that the pure God could have any direct dealings with impure people. And so Jesus had uh, to be just one of many emanations coming out from God to bring us some information about God, but of course could not be a uh, you know, direct uh, connection with God. But what Paul does here is he shows that Jesus, far from being one of many emanations from God, is none other than God himself. So Paul just blows that whole thing out of the water, that uh, uh, Christ is, is not only not an emanation, one of many, one, one rung in the ladder uh, of you know, man's connecting with God or God connecting with man, but, but Christ is God himself. And so through that, he, through magnifying Christ, through uh, showing the glory of Christ, he's going to refute the error that was seeking to creep into the church. And so, as I was saying earlier, rather than taking um, a frontal assault, as he will do in the second chapter, here in the first chapter, he is using this other strategy of, let me just show everyone who Jesus really is, and then that answers all of these false ideas that are uh, floating around at the time. And so I think that is a, is a great way to approach things. It reminds me of what D.L. Moody did back in 1893 when the World Parliament of Religions came uh, to Chicago. Now, now D.L. Moody, for those of you who don't know, the simplest way to understand D.L. Moody is he was the Billy Graham of the 19th century. So just as we would know Billy Graham in the 20th century, we would know how um, he had this extraordinary evangelistic gift and, and ministry. So Moody was that in a previous generation. And uh, so in 1893, the uh, World Parliament of Religions came to uh, Chicago as part of this massive fair that was going on. And millions upon millions of people were going to come through uh, Chicago at that time. 
And so Moody, being the passionate evangelist that he was, he saw this as an opportunity for the gospel. And so what he did is he commissioned evangelists and he assigned them to preaching posts, various places throughout the city. Uh, He used churches. He rented theaters. He even set up a circus tent and used that as a place from which he would preach. And when it was all said and done, thousands upon thousands of people, millions had come to Chicago, but thousands upon thousands had actually received Christ through this, um, this vision and this effort that Moody put forth. But here's the point that I want to make. Moody's colleagues advised him as they were planning this, as they were strategizing for what they were going to do. Many of Moody's colleagues wanted him to attack the world parliament of religions. So their method was the frontal assault. They said, you know, all of these false religions are coming into our uh, city. They're coming from all around the world to discuss how we might come up with a a new religion that that would be suited for all people. You know, we tend to think of those ideas as as pretty recent in history. We think of, well, that just sounds like the New Age movement. And yes, it does sound like that. But this was back in 1893. So anyway, the the group around Moody, they, they said, this is a great opportunity to basically attack these religions. And so I would imagine in their minds, they would have like, hey, let's do a seminar on why Hinduism is not of God and let's address Islam and let's talk about Buddhism. And, you know, they had all these different things. I would imagine that they would have been encouraging Moody. This is the moment to refute these false ideas. But the interesting thing is that Moody refused to do it. And he said this, this would be his strategy. He said, I'm going to make Jesus Christ so attractive that people will want to turn to him. So rather than than focusing on the false religions, he says, no, we're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to present Christ. Moody learned that from Paul because that's exactly what Paul is doing here in Colossians chapter one. Now, like I said, he's going to get a little more aggressive when we get to the second chapter and deal more specifically with the false teaching and the false teachers. But, but right here up front, he's laying the groundwork by saying, no, we're going to make Christ so attractive that he's going to be uh, irresistible and, and it will be obvious that um, we would prefer Christ over these other options. R. Kent Hughes, who uh, wrote a commentary on uh, Colossians, he rightly noted, he said this, Moody knew that preaching Christ preeminent, the peerless, supreme, all-sufficient Christ clearly presented would do the job. He knew that would do the job. That is what we need to do. And so, I agree that that is the better method. And, you know, people rarely are uh, argued out of their positions. It's, It's not 
too often, although it does happen occasionally, it's not too often that uh, when you take the approach of criticizing a person's uh, position that you, you win them over or you persuade them. A lot of times it just entrenches them more deeply in the, the position that they previously held. I remember when I was, uh, you know, kind of transitioning from the Catholicism that I grew up in to, um, you know, on the journey to coming to know Christ personally. Uh, but I remember whenever I would hear any kind of negative thing about Catholicism, you know what it did for me? It just made me want to fight. It made me dig in my heels and fall back on my Catholic heritage. And, you know, it kind of closed my ears off to hearing the truth because I was so preoccupied with defending my position. And I think that that happens a lot of the time. And so we have to remember, we have something so much better than anything else to point people to. We have a person. And his name is Jesus, and in him, all the fullness of God dwells in human form. So this is the, the approach that I think in, in this moment, this is the approach for the most part that we need to take. This is our first approach. Now, it's not to say that we don't at times refute things or uh, show the 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 falsity of positions and all of that. We, we do that, but I think our first approach is to present Christ. So that's what he does. So here in verses 15 through 18, Paul tells us seven things about Christ. Uh, he told them seven things about Christ that they needed to realize, they needed to remember, they needed to be rooted in these things. And we're going to look at those seven things together now. So let me read the passage again, and then we'll walk through each one of the things he says. So verse 15, he is, speaking of Christ, obviously, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And so Paul talking about this, this one who, um, who redeemed us through his blood and forgave our sins, he goes on and he says, he is the image of of the invisible God. Now, the word image here, the, the Greek word is the word that we also get our English word icon from. And this word referred to a, uh, could refer to a portrait. Uh, it could refer to a, uh, an image that was placed upon a wax uh, seal. It referred to the uh, image that was stamped on a coin. The idea is that it was the identical representation of the object or person represented. That's the idea. Now, the author of the letter to the Hebrews says 
something almost identical to what Paul is saying here. And let me read that to us from uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Uh, says, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the universe, who being the brightness of his glory, and here it is, the express image of his person, or another translation is the exact representation of his being and upholding all things by the word of his power. So Christ is the visible manifestation of God. God is invisible. No one has seen God at any time. Paul, in writing to Timothy, he says that God dwells in the light that no man can approach. And it says that no one has seen or can see him. But then in John 1.18, John tells us after beginning his great gospel with that uh, statement about Christ, who was in the beginning with God, he's the word, he was with God, and how the word became flesh and dwelt among us in verse 14. And then in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, or no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. So what does God look like? If somebody were to come to you today and say, hey, you know, tell me about God. How, is there a way I could see God? Well, on the one hand, we would say no, because God is invisible. But on the other hand, we could say, well, actually, yes, you can see God and you can see him through the person of Jesus. Remember how uh, Jesus was with his disciples. And I think it was Philip who at one point he said, Lord, show us the father. If you show us the father, that, that'll be sufficient. And Jesus said, Philip, have I been with you so long that you haven't recognized me? They that have seen me have seen the father. So you see, Jesus is uh, the invisible God becomes visible through Jesus. Imagine that, that there was a mirror that God could stand in front of. Now, we couldn't see him standing there because he's invisible. But if there was a reflection in that mirror, you would see Jesus. So that's the idea. Just as a mirror reflects uh, the person in front of it, so uh, Christ is a reflection of God. So when people wonder about God, this is why when people ask me the question, well, what is God like? I said, well, hey, listen, we have got, uh, we've got four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that give us a picture of what God is like. And as we take those gospels and as we look at Jesus and as we uh, look at uh, the way he interacted with people and the way he loved and the way he was compassionate and you know all of the things that we see we're seeing God so he is the image of the invisible God Paul says first and secondly he says that he is the firstborn over all creation the firstborn over all creation now the King James version really messed up on this translation if you're still using that old version you will know that it says that he is the firstborn of the creation. 
Now, because it words it that way, the firstborn of creation, that gave the people who don't want to believe that, that Jesus is really the true God, the eternal God, it gave them a little bit of ammunition. Because they, they would say, see, it says right here, he's the firstborn of the creation. So that means uh, he, when, when creation happened, he was the first one to get created. But that's not what the, the text actually says. The text actually says that he is the firstborn over all of creation. He's over creation. And so the word that's translated firstborn, it's used twice in this passage. We'll see it again in the final verse that we're going to look at. Um, but the word, prototokos is the Greek word, if you want to know that. But the word could refer to first in order of time. And it does actually in the second using, I think. Uh, but first in the order of time, such as a firstborn child, or it could refer also to one who is preeminent in rank. And I think clearly that's the way Paul is using it here, that Christ is preeminent in rank. Psalm 89, verse 27, it's a, it's a messianic psalm. The Lord says concerning the Messiah, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So you see there, it's clear that firstborn means first in rank, not first in numerical order. Uh, one more passage from Jeremiah, I think it's 31 verse 9. Uh, there God refers to Ephraim as his firstborn. All you have to do is look in the genealogies and you know that Ephraim was not the firstborn. Ephraim wasn't even a direct son of Jacob. He was a son of Joseph. But there God is talking about the you know, if you will, the preeminence of Ephraim among the tribes. And so that's what Paul is telling us here, that, that Christ is supreme. You know, people will use that term, uh, a supreme being. Some, sometimes people will say, well, you know, I believe in a supreme being. Good. Let me tell you about the supreme being. Let me tell you who that is. That is Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn over all creation, and that flows right into the next point. He's the firstborn over all creation. He's actually the one who did the creating. He created everything. Now, sometimes I think we mistakenly think that um, creation, the creation account in Genesis 1, that's the place where we're told in the Bible that God created everything. People have a really difficult time in those early chapters of Genesis. So they think, oh, well, that, you know, that, that probably is mythological or, you know, they tend to sort of uh, dismiss that. But did you know that that's one of dozens of places in the Bible where God declares himself to be the creator? God says it over and over again. We studied recently through the, the prophecy of Isaiah. And if you were with us, we saw in those chapters, especially, you know, chapter 40 through, uh, 50, we saw how God declares over and over again, I am the Lord, I created the heavens, I created the earth, I created uh, human beings, I put their spirit within them, I breathed on them. Over and over, God says this. But when we get to the New Testament, interestingly, what's clarified in the New Testament is that the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he's actually the, he's the, specifically the creator. 
And that's what Paul tells us here. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. So think about that for a moment. The invisible realm. So there is an invisible realm. There is a whole world that we can't access or see from where we are. And that world is inhabited by what he calls here principalities, powers, dominions, authorities, mights, however it might be translated. He's talking about the spiritual world. And this would include the holy angels, but it would also include those rebellious uh, spirits. Satan, commonly we've referred to him that way, Satan being the head over that. But the point is that Jesus created all of these things. Now, when he created them, they were, there was harmony and there, there was you know, submission to his authority, but there came a rebellion. And, and Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, he tells us about the principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world. But Paul's point is that Christ is the creator of all things in heaven, the invisible, but he's also the creator of all things on earth, the visible. Now, this is something that I wish I could just get my own mind trained for this. And I think if every one of us could get our minds trained in this way, how wonderful it would be. Um, you know, one of the things I really admired about my father-in-law, uh, Pastor Chuck Smith, was his love for nature. I mean, he just really loved nature. And he knew, he knew everything about like plants and, um, you know, flowers and things like that. And my wife, she's, she's pretty amazing. She knows quite a bit too, but her dad taught it to her. You know, they used to take walks and he would point out this tree and he would point out that flower and he would tell her this and that about it. And I just think that is so wonderful. And, you know, he would have all this interesting information about little animals and bugs and things like that. You know what? I wish that, that my brain would absorb that stuff too, because that is just a reminder to us of the glory of Jesus if we understand it properly. If we look at, you know, um, somebody brought my wife flowers because, you know, she's uh, recovering from a surgery and a friend sent over some, um, a whole thing of gardenias. And every time I walk by, I forget that they're even there, but I walk by and I get that, I get that whiff of the gardenia smell. And I think, oh gosh, that's so good. And then I go over and just stick my face in it for a minute and just inhale it and think, this is it's such a beautiful um, Sent, And the Lord Jesus made that. He made that flower to smell like that. Or, you know, you think of all, all the creatures and things like that. My 19-year-old grandson, for his birthday, um, he got a, a number of, um, he got a little colony of praying mantis. Now, praying mantis are insects, for those of you who don't know. And they're kind of like, um, like the dinosaur of the insect world. They're kind of like the Tyrannosaurus Rex of the insect world. They're these uh, amazing creatures. They look like a stick. You would most of the time never even know that they're alive. They, they 
situates them, themselves on a branch, so they just look like they're part of the branch, and then you know, something comes by that they want to eat, and they just snatch that thing up as quick as lightning, and they devour it, and then nobody knows the difference. It's just like, wow, what happened there? And so my grandson, he's, he's really into the praying mantis, so he you know, sends me videos, he tells me what they're eating, and all of this kind of stuff. And um, recently I saw where, uh, I, I saw online somewhere, remember a few months ago where we heard about uh, the, the, the deadly, the killer hornets that are coming to our country? You remember that? We got this report that the killer hornets are actually already here and they can kill a man, they could kill a horse. And what are we gonna do? Well, have no fear, the praying mantis is here because the praying mantis takes out a killer hornet in a matter of milliseconds. And so I saw this amazing, I saw this amazing video where there's a killer hornet and there's a praying mantis. Praying mantis just at lightning speed grabs the, the killer hornet and grabs him around the head and just munches his head off just so fast the killer hornet didn't even know it hit him. And I thought, okay, we're, we're going to be safe. We're going to be all right. Especially my family because we have a, um, we have a colony of uh, praying mantis. But let me say this. When we look at that stuff, we have to remember Jesus made that. Now, our minds have been so conditioned by naturalism and so conditioned by evolutionary theory and all of that. And even if we don't believe that, sometimes we just sort of think almost in those terms. But when we look at creation, when we look at nature, we need to understand, as N.T. Wright said, he said, when the lavish and generous beauty of the world makes you catch your breath, remember that it is like that because of Jesus. Do we do that? He is the creator of all things. They were created by him and they were created for him, which means that all of creation ultimately will serve to glorify him and fulfill his purpose. So many things in creation that we don't even know anything about, right? But even the stuff that we know a little bit about, you might scratch your head and wonder, now how does that ultimately fulfill the purpose of Christ? I don't know at this point. And of course, we live in a fallen world as well. And even though it's a fallen world, it's still a majestic world. But Paul tells us that everything uh, is purposed toward him. And then he says that he is before all things. So he is before all things. So obviously, if he's the creator, he precedes the creation. So the all things would be the material universe. So he is before that, meaning that he is eternal. He is the one who has no beginning. He has no end. He is the eternal one. And then he says that he is not only before all things, but in him all things consist. All things consist in him. Or as a newer translation would read, all things are held together by him. So this is amazing because what Paul is telling us is that presently Christ is holding the universe together. See, sometimes we talk about the laws of nature, 
and the laws of physics and things like that. And we think that, well, you know, yeah, this is how it all works. And this is why this does this and that doesn't do that. And yet, according to scripture, those things are the way they are because of Christ, that he is presently holding all things together. Now, we know that all material things are made up of atoms. We know that atoms are made of protons and electrons, but we don't know how or why they do what they do. We don't know. The smartest uh, people, when it comes to physics and these kinds of things, you know, they can tell you about the atom, the proton, the electron, the neutron. They can tell you, you know, about this through observation, but they can't tell you like why it is this way or how it is this way. It, there, there is a mystery. Why does the atom hold together? What holds it together? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't seem like it should hold together. Well, look what Paul says here. By him, all things are held together. So when we get up every morning and we see what seems to be like the sun rising, and I don't want to be unscientific here, right? It's not really the sun rising, it's the earth turning. But when we see that sunrise and when we see the sunset in the evening, if you are down on the coast and you're able to watch the sun, you know, sink into the Pacific there. And then as the darkness descends, the moon begins to shine brightly. You know, as we look at all of this stuff, isn't it true that we just so often like, oh, hey, that's beautiful. That's great. Oh, that's wonderful. And then, you know, we're off to looking at our phones or something. But if we stopped and thought, wow, this happens because of Jesus Christ. He holds all things together. Amazing. He holds all things together. And then Paul says, sixthly, he is the head of the body, the church. So, so think about everything Paul's talking about. This person who is the image of God, this person who is the creator of all things, this person who... Uh, is eternal, who has always existed. This person who is sustaining everything, he's also the head of the body of the church. Wow, how amazing is that? How encouraging is that? That he's the head. Now, when the scriptures speak of Christ being the head, that's really speaking of the fact that he is the one who directs and controls the body of the church. Just as our bodies are directed and controlled by our, our brains and our central nervous system, so Christ is the head of the body. He's the, the mind, the brain. And some people have likened the, the central nervous system as the Holy Spirit. And then the church is made up of the various members of the body. And so this one who is the great and preeminent king of the universe is also the head of the church. Amazing. And if we, I think if we ever could grasp that as the people of God, and of course, if we could ever get the analogy and really understand it, we would understand this, that the body 
only functions properly in as much as it is receiving its, the signals from the head. And if we all understood that and said, you know what? We can't really do anything ourselves. We're going to, we just got to stay connected to the head and we'll get our, our direction, our instruction. We'll, we'll get that from the Lord. If, if every one of us could get to that place as the body of Christ, you know what you would have? You would have unity. But unfortunately, we have um, the battle between the flesh and the spirit, and we have all of those things that prevent that. But the reality is Christ is the head of the body, whether we acknowledge it or realize it or experience it at times. But he is the head of the body, the church. And so what that means practically is that Christ by the spirit intends to lead and empower his people to love one another and to work together for his purposes. So that's what the head is seeking to do. And then finally, he is the firstborn from the dead. So here's that word that we came across earlier, prototokos. And it, again, it is a word that can mean um, first in order or first in rank. So the first use, as I said, was first in rank. Now it is, I think, first in order. Now, some have said, no, it's the, it's the same here um, because it says Christ is the firstborn from the dead. And I even read one commentator who said, well, it can't be um, first in order because Christ isn't the first one to rise from the dead. Other people rose from the dead. But I think that's incorrect. I think that Christ is the first to rise from the dead in the fullest sense of what is being talked about here. Because think about every other person that was raised from the dead, whether it's an Old Testament account or a New Testament account, what did they all have in common? They all died again. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead in that he rose from the dead never to die again. He rose from the dead and received his glorified body and he walked on the earth in that glorified body. And he sat with the disciples and he had a meal with them in the glorified body. And so he is the firstborn from the dead in the sense that, of course, he's, he's, yes, obviously, we would say he's the first in rank. He's the most important of those who rise from the dead. But when Paul says he's the firstborn from the dead, meaning he's the first one and his resurrection guarantees the resurrection of all who are part of his body. And so Paul put it another way in writing to the Corinthians in the 15th chapter. He said he referred to Christ as the first fruits and those who are Christ at his coming. So the resurrection began with Christ. He's the first fruits. And then the next phase will be those who are Christ at his coming. They will then participate in the resurrection. And so Christ is the firstborn from the dead. He conquered death and he did that on our behalf. And so the final thing Paul says here is that he may have the preeminence. All of this is that he may have the preeminence. And then verse 19 says, for it pleased the father that in him all the fullness should dwell. We're going to pick up there next time. But 
We just want to add that on. It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Remember, we go back, what's the philosophy that's undermining the glory of Christ? Oh, Christ is, he's an emanation. We, we can't really get, you know, we can't expect to connect directly with God because of our impurity. So, so Christ is, is just one of many emanations from God. And Paul says, oh no, the fullness of the divine nature dwells in him. He is, like I said, he's not simply an emanation from God. He is God himself. And so Christ preeminent is the Father's plan, and his plan cannot be thwarted. Christ preeminent. God is in the process of moving history toward the final demonstration of the preeminence of Christ. That's what's going to happen when Jesus returns. It's going to once and for all be settled. It's going to be said and done that Jesus is Lord, that he is the preeminent one. And God is in the process of bringing that about. And as I said, his plan cannot be thwarted. His plan cannot be thwarted. Christ is preeminent, and that will be ultimately seen. But for now, his preeminence is to be acknowledged, honored, submitted to, and displayed through the church. So the world today is not thinking of Christ at all. Um, And oftentimes, even if they are thinking of Christ, they're not thinking of of the biblical Christ. They're thinking more of this uh, philosophical Gnostic kind of a Christ. Um, but the church is the place where the true Christ is known and honored and glorified. And it's through the church that God wants to display the preeminence of Christ to the world. And, you know, this brings us back to, to something that we've kind of kept circling around to over these past several weeks that, that the church is, as we read, the body of Christ we are, we are the representation of Christ. And we are to display that preeminence of Christ. In other words, Christ, in order for us to display his preeminence to the world, he has to be preeminent to us. In other words, he has to be everything to us. He has to be first. The CSB just translates it that, that Christ might be first in everything. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, is Christ first in our lives? And if not, why not? And how could it be that we wouldn't have Christ first in our lives, especially once we understand who he is? I mean, he is ultimate reality. There is no uh, reality that's separate from Christ. Christ is ultimate reality. And all of those who are living their lives for any other purpose are living under a delusion, everyone. And even sometimes the people of God are living delusionally because even though Christ is preeminent, we're not really submitting ourselves to that. And so the the practical application for us is if we're going to display the preeminence of Christ to the world, Christ must be preeminent in our lives. We must be fully surrendered to him. 
And that's where I want to leave you today. Are we fully surrendered to him? If not, why not? How could it be that we could look at this Jesus Christ, this, this image of the invisible God, the, this one who created us, and somehow say, well, I, I don't really want his um, authority over my life. I, how could we even think that way? We could only think that way if we're misthinking, if we're in some way delusional. Here's the truth. Again, to quote from N.T. Wright, he said, the more we get to know and know about Jesus Christ, the more we will understand who the true God is and what he's done, who we are as a result, and what it means to live in and for him. Boy, that's what we want to do. We want to live in and for him. And considering the state of the world... I don't know why anybody would want to live anywhere else because there's no hope. There's no solution. There's no answer. There's nothing but hostility and animosity and, and you know, all the stuff that we see going on in the culture presently. And for all of that, there's only one solution and that is Christ. And we have the incredible privilege of knowing Christ and then making him known to others. You know, I'll close with this. I was thinking about the, um, just the, you know, the current state of affairs um, around the world, but more specifically in the country with all the division and the race issues and, and all of these things that are going on. And I was just thinking about, you know, how do, how do we as the church navigate this? You know, what is, what is our place? What is our role? And I was, I was thinking about how, you know, the very similar time right now to back in the late 60s. Very, very similar. If you look at footage from, from the 1960s, especially like 1968, I mean, you can look at footage from there and think you're watching something that happened yesterday. It's so similar. And, uh, you know, as, I, as I'm looking at this and I'm, and I'm thinking about that back then and the current situation, and, you know, you see these mobs and you see everybody's just completely nuts and, you know, trying to have like a conversation in that context is, is you know, pretty impossible. I was thinking, you know, what would it be like to go out into the middle of one of these mobs and grab a bullhorn and say, hey, everybody needs Jesus, you know? Um, I mean, probably going to fall on deaf ears for the most part. But then I was thinking about what God did back in those days, those, those earlier days where we had similar uh, national chaos. And you know what the Lord did is he started just taking people that were in the midst of that. And in some cases, the ringleaders of that, and he started saving them. And then it became this exponential thing, and it just started growing and growing and growing. And pretty soon, there were so many people that came to faith, things just sort of naturally changed. And, and I think of the situation today, and I wonder, are we thinking in those terms? Are we, are we praying for those things? 
You know, when we see somebody on the news or we see someone on social media, you know, I saw the other day, a, a, you know, a man who somebody put him on there. He's representing a group. He's talking about, we're going to burn the nation down and all of this. And, you know, what is our first, as Christians, what is our first uh, thought about that? Where do, where, do we, where do we go in our hearts in regard to a person like that? Well, I, I would say, you know, from the natural standpoint, you know, some people go right with it. Yeah, that's what needs to be. That's what needs to happen. Other people say, you know, this guy needs to be um, arrested. This guy needs to be put in jail. This guy needs to be eliminated. Whatever the case. But you know, where does the where does the the believer go with these things? Well, the place that we should go is, man, this person needs Jesus. Lord, would you save this person? Would you reach out to them? Lord, would you send the gospel to them in some way, shape, or form? Would you show them the delusional path that they're on? Would you open their eyes to the reality that everything they want and are longing for is not going to be attained the way they think, but Lord, that they would understand that, no, this can only come through you. And I think that as God's people, that's a huge factor in how we're going to see anything change. We have to be the agents of change. And it begins with prayer and having a heart and asking God to give us a heart. And I'll tell this one final quick story. My wife, um, you know, she does a podcast that I love, uh, Women You Should Know. And you know, quite honestly, my natural inclinations when it comes to, you know, seeing people rioting and things like that, my natural response is, you know, um, we ought to stop that right now and we ought to use whatever force we need to use to do it. And that, you know, that's, that's my natural response. So my wife is telling this story about a woman named... Uh, Evelyn Brand, who became known as Granny Brand, who was a missionary in India. And she tells a story of, you know, the, she went to this particular people and they, they ministered the gospel there. And there was a um, kind of like a witch doctor, a swami in the, in the community. And he opposed everything they did. So when they would share the gospel, he would be the first one to get to the people they shared with. And he would do his best to undo everything that they had done. He inspired terror. He encouraged the burning of, of homes and villages of people who, you know, put their faith in Christ and all of this. So, you know, when you're listening to this initially, you're thinking, man, somebody should have just taken this guy out. What? <laughs> this guy is a menace. This guy is, he's, you know, he needs to go. But here's the, the amazing thing. As the story goes on, he becomes ill uh, to the point of death. And Granny Brand and the missionaries, they feel that God is saying, reach out to him with my love. And so to make a long story short, they do. They reach out to him. He receives Jesus and he's going to die. So he says, I want you to raise my children. Would you please raise my children in the way of Swami Isu? And so they did. They undertook to raise his children. One of his children became one of the great you know, leaders in that, in that village world. But the point is simply this. The natural response to that kind of thing is to just let's get 
this person out of the way. But you never know but what that might be a person that God's going to save. And that's what we can never forget. We have to remember that this is all about Christ in the end. It's not about my comfort. It's not about me. It's not about our nation even. It's about Christ and his preeminence. And his preeminence is uh, displaying itself in bringing all things into submission to himself. And that means people that look like they are so far gone that there is absolutely no way that they could ever turn, but they can because God is able. And so may God help us to, for ourselves to remember the preeminence of Christ. If I lose sight of this, if I, you know, if honestly, if I get my eyes off of Jesus and onto the situation, um, it's distressing. It causes anxiety. It, you know, it, it's, it's unpleasant. But if I keep my focus on God is at work, God is in control, God is doing something bigger than what I might be able to understand, if I remember that Christ is preeminent and all that's happening is God's will to display that preeminence of Christ, then I can rest and say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And so, Lord, help us to lay hold of the truth of your preeminence and help us, Lord, to find our peace in that and help us to find our purpose through that as well. Lord, our ultimate purpose is your purpose. So direct us into that. And we do want to pray again. We want to pray for our nation. We want to pray for the disorder, the confusion. Uh, and Lord, we think of the, the multitudes of people, so many of them young, who are completely um, just uh, deceived in regard to life and reality and, and all of those things. And, and Lord, if, if you know, we walked up and told them that, they would probably spit in our face. But you, Lord, are able to break through even the hardest heart. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit, Lord, just as you did back in those days in the 60s, and you've done many times over in human history, just as you have begun to invade a culture by your spirit and convict people of sin and show them their need for you and draw many people to yourself, Lord, we pray that you would do that in these days and help us, Lord, as your people to keep our eyes on you, to remember your preeminence, Lord, to rest in that and also to display that to others, we pray. And Lord, I, I pray for anyone that's joined us in whatever way, whether here on the campus or on the screen or over the radio, anyone that has yet to fully surrender to Christ, may they do that today in Jesus' name, amen.